Welcome back. In this episode, I speak with Iona Italia. Iona has a PhD in literature from Cambridge University and is an editor at Aereo Magazine and currently lives in London. We speak about her background, both personally and academically, including her experience living in multiple countries and how that has shaped her worldview, how to be a good writer and issues that emerge from academic training, the humanities and the enlightenment, and the importance of literature in our lives. Iona is a charming and humorous interlocutor, and it was a joy to spend this time with her. I hope you enjoy it as well. Iona, welcome. Hello. Uh, how are you doing today? I am fine. <laughs> today is a slightly hectic day. I overscheduled myself and um, I stayed up late last night um, talking to a friend and um, in the States and, and uh, um, following the chaotic um, things that are going on there. Are you all still okay? Are you all right? I, I think so. So I live far enough away from the capital that nothing but, <laughs> but psychologically, I think there's a lot of um, fallout that we're going to be dealing with this from a long time. Uh, the idea of people, you know, we're recording this the day after uh, a group of a mob invaded the United States Capitol building. Um, the first time anyone had breached that since the war of 1812. So uh, yes, I think psychologically there are people reeling a bit um, and perhaps like rightfully so. And so. Um, yes. So I, 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 because I stayed up half the night doing that, which was very inadvisable um, on a day when I'm actually quite busy. <laughs> um, everything has become incredibly hectic. And, uh, and also it is my day to cook dinner. So as I think everybody who follows me on Twitter or Instagram knows, um, I, I live with four old friends. I live with four men um, for my sins um, in <laughs> London. And um, uh, we have what we call supper club um, where each person has a day in the week when um, uh, he, or in my case, she cooks for the others. And this is my day and I decided to make something extremely elaborate um, and fattening for some reason, even though I did say in 2021 was going to be the year I become thin, but it's the year of thinness has not begun yet, let's say it's a little <laughs> slow getting off the ground. <laughs> uh, we can all be forgiven that though. Oh, well, you're funny. American, so you know. Right. You have, I mean, I can't see, I can only see you from the chin upwards, but, yes. you know, you guys yes. <laughs> have yeah. a lot to answer for in that regard. Yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> that was uh, one of the few things that came out of 2020. I lost, I think I lost 60 pounds. Um, I found them. Yes. <laughs> you bastard. You yeah, threw I'm so them sorry. in my direction. They have, <laughs> like, attached themselves to my body. Floated all the way across the ocean. That's right. <laughs> That's very good. So um, I blame you. Yeah, please. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, that's funny. Please take back the 60 pounds. No, no, no. Some other, <laughs> some, un, you know, some other unlucky bastard can have them. I don't want them back. The, um, so that's very funny. So why don't you, um, if you want to tell us a little bit about, obviously, you're to be given a bit about who you are and where you are. 
Um, how about, can you give us a short synopsis of sort of what you've done, um, like your educational background, and then uh, that can take us into a conversation about, you are the first person that I've talked to here on the podcast that has spent an extensive amount of time um, globe hopping, <laughs> I suppose, has, has lived in multiple countries, has dual citizenships. And so I'd really like to spend some time talking to you about that. But if you first want to give us a 10,000 foot overview of two minute synopsis of your life, and then we can sort of jump into the details. Um, okay. So um, I was actually born in Scotland, um, but my mother came over pregnant. Um, I was born and she returned right away to uh, Karachi, Pakistan with me as a babe in arms. Um, so I spent my early childhood um, in the, living in the Parsi Bagh, the Parsi uh, neighborhood in Karachi. And this was, you know, we had only just crawled out of the seas onto land. Um, we we're still <laughs> recovering from the effect, after effects of the asteroid. Um, uh, so, and then we, um, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of summarize the chronology of this a little bit loosely. Um, but basically, at more or less the same time, my parents, both my parents died and I um, came from Pakistan to the UK. Didn't happen in exactly that order, but it, it was kind of in that within a short time frame. And um, I um, went to boarding school uh, in the UK, just outside London. And... Um, I was an extreme uh, introvert as a child. I mean, people thought there was something wrong with me. Uh, now they now they still think that, but for the opposite reasons. Different reasons. Uh, <laughs> and um, I went to Cambridge. Um, I did my undergraduate degree uh, in English literature, and I did my um, PhD on um, essayists, periodical essayists of the 18th century. Um, and uh, in between, I took a couple of uh, gap years. Um, I spent some time in Los Angeles working for an AIDS charity. And I also lived in Germany where I worked for a trades union, German trades union as a secretary. Then um, after my PhD, um, uh, I published my PhD as a book, by the way, in 2003, I, I did a much um, expanded version. So I did. I looked at five essays for the PhD, and I looked at ten essays for the for the book. Um, and so I published that in two thousand and three. It's called Anxious Employment. In case anybody is interested. Yeah. And then I, um, uh, after my PhD, I went first. I worked as a language assistant at a German university, and then I had several academic jobs. Uh, first, I worked for three years at Carlton, Carlton College, which is not very far from you. Mm -hmm. For a while, I dated someone from Wisconsin. No. Uh, so I've had, you know, a dark past, as you can tell. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> all these dark secrets are coming out now. Um, I, I worked at Carlton College, a small kind of exclusive liberal arts college. Um, then I also, um, I spent... Uh, a couple of years at Aberystwyth, um, at the University of Wales at Aberystwyth. And then I taught at the University of East Anglia. And basically I taught 18th century English literature. Um, and in 2006, 
I and my then husband decided to go to Buenos Aires for a year uh, to um, for intensive tango dance training. So we had been already dance tango at that time. Hmm. And we decided we wanted to spend a year just take a take an unpaid sabbatical and do that. And um, I never came back. Um, I mean, I never returned to academe from that, which was an extremely foolhardy thing to do. I have this tendency to rush after foolhardy uh, projects, um, but I just, um, there were a number of reasons which I won't get into, but I, I in the end, I stayed in Argentina um, on and off until a year ago. Um, and um, where I, um, largely earned my living as a tango teacher, uh, mostly assisting um, a more prestigious teacher, and also spent quite a lot of time in the States. I had a very popular um, tango blog, which I later made into a two-volume book, and um, people would invite me to teach dance and to teach musical appreciation and to read from the book and things like that. So I used to spend a lot of time kind of quote unquote touring. Uh, that makes it sound really, uh, really like posh, but, you know, um, staying with friends and kind of trying to <laughs> trying to make it pay for itself mm -hmm. uh, doing that. And then in, <clears throat> I think it was 2016, uh, I also I applied for Argentine citizenship, so I am now a dual citizen of the UK and Argentina. Um, and in 2016, I decided that I really wanted to go to India, and I had never been to India before. Um, and for lots of complicated reasons, I also had nev have never gone back to Pakistan. But I wanted to explore my Parsi roots. And the main center of Parsi life and community is in Bombay. And so I, um, I don't have any family left in India. I didn't know anyone in India. I used social media to basically make contacts. And then I went to India and I spent two years in India, um, and, which was life-changing for me. And then a year ago, um, I decided that I wanted to move back to the to Britain, um, and um, being in India made me feel like I didn't want to try to be professionally involved in tango anymore. To make mm -hmm. that the center of my life, I wanted to return to like reading and writing and intellectual pursuits, and um, and I wanted to be around old friends and 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 spend part of the year in India, which I can also do from here, presumably. If, if we ever get out of the other end of this plague yes. and are allowed to go anywhere. So, um, so I went to India for two years and then um, I returned here. Um, I wasn't going to return until later, but when I saw that lockdown was about to happen, I got on the penultimate plane out of Buenos Aires and just made it here under the wire mm -hmm. uh, in mid-March. So actually, since I got here in March, I have seen, uh, I almost pretty much haven't seen any of my old friends that I moved here to see. 
um, I haven't been dancing. I haven't done anything because we have just been under more or less in and out of lockdown under restrict, strict restrictions since I, since I got here. So that's my life so far. Um, that's probably a more detailed answer than you required, but. Well, no, it's, it's really great. Thank you for sharing all of that. And because it leads me to a couple of uh, topics I wanted to maybe parse out a bit more. The, there, it's so often that people who advocate a cosmopolitan way of thinking are not cosmopolitan in the way that they live. And which is always one of those great ironies where people become in some ways obsessed with a theory, but aren't willing to live according to its edicts. The, uh, a lot of the writings that you have uh, put out at um, Aereo magazine talk about the, the significance of liberalism and by this, the, the significance of the individual over the collective, but particularly the importance of uh, freedom of speech and sort of the, the rights that come downstream from that. But you're one of the, the few people that I'm personally aware of, and there, I'm sure there are plenty of others that I'm unaware of, but that I know that also lives according to a kind of cosmopolitan life, that there's uh, no boundaries that you know uh, to the thing you wish to pursue or for the reason you wish to pursue it. And so I would like to, if you wouldn't mind, spend a, a little bit of time talking about um, you, you mentioned some of the desires of why you left and went uh, to Argentina. Why did you decide to apply for a dual citizenship? What, what was the significance of that in, in your mind? Um, well, um, so when I first arrived in Argentina in 2006, Argentine law tends to be a little bit baggy, uh, a little bit saggy, right? And <laughs> kind of, um, um, uh, you know, very. It's very often more honoured in the breach than the observance. Mm. Yeah. Um, and um, when I first arrived um, with my husband, um, immigration laws were very, very lax. And what people would do uh, is, you could be in Argentina on um, on a visa waiver scheme for ninety days, and um, you had to. Uh, after 90 days, you had to leave the country and then you could get another visa waiver scheme. So we all used to just get on a ferry and go across to um, Uruguay, spend the day in Uruguay and then come back with a new visa waiver. Uh. Um, and I lived that way for years. Um, many people did. And mm. then they suddenly tightened up the laws. And in fact, I was returning from Uruguay and they stamped my passport and it said, this is your last visa waiver. Um, it's called ul, ul, um, Ultima Proroga. So uh, it means that's it. We won't give you another visa waiver. Um, so I had 90 days to try to get things sorted out. And in Argentina, if you are in the process of applying for citizenship, they cannot deport you from the country during that process. So what I did was immediately started the process. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> it was pretty, it was a pretty lengthy process. It took me about a year and a half. Um, and I 
um, you do you do need a, a lawyer. Um, there are various court appearances and things, um, which you can do by proxy through your lawyer. You can send your lawyer for you. Um, so I did get a lawyer, but I didn't get one of the really expensive immigration lawyers who do everything for you. So I had to do a lot of paperwork and, um, but finally it came through. And one of the ironies of it was that um, before um, I had a um, dual Pakistani and UK citizenship um, and having Pakistani citizenship has made life difficult for me on a few occasions, um, mm. including it's very difficult to visit, to get visas for India. Um, so as, as soon as I got my Argentine citizenship, my Pakistani citizenship was automatically null and void. Uh. Um, and so the, almost the first thing I did on getting citizenship was apply to leave and go to India. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my plan was to live long-term in Argentina I just, um, several things happened uh, over the past few years that made me decide actually that it was time to leave. Um, but my plan had been to be in Argentina, you know, forever to be, mm -hmm. um, I was at home in Argentina. And so that's why I, I applied for citizenship. And then the trip to India is the thing that changed that perspective and made you want to return back to London. Is that right? Yes, mostly. So it was partly that, um, um, it was partly that I, I injured my back. Um, again, I'm just, I'm being very rough and ready with chronologies here because it's of nobody's interest exactly when what happened, but these all happened roughly simultaneously again. So I injured my back and, and um, it's um, a really, tango involves a lot of repetitive twisting motions that go all the way down the spine to the lumbar spine. And it's really, it's not a very good idea to do twisting of the lumbar spine. I mean, it's fine to do it, uh, you know, a little bit, but um, 100 times an hour for 10 hours a day uh, is, is not the best for your back. If you're prone to back issues, many people dance tango with no problems at all. Um, but I discovered that I had three um, swollen and protruding discs in the lumbar spine. And um, so I had to kind of lay off um, dancing. And when I was no longer really, my life was no longer centered around dancing tango, it felt as though I, I, I think I've never felt fully at home in Argentina. It was always the dancing that was the central magnet, the, cent the, the thing that was anchoring me there. And um, although I do have, I obviously do have some friends in Argentina, so I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to make it appear that I was totally lonely there, but I didn't really gel socially very well um, with, with the culture. And um, when I went to India, I just, um, so, um, well, a lot of things happened. One thing that happened was on a human level, even though when I arrived in India, I didn't know anybody at all. Um, I had quite a dramatic first couple of weeks and I almost left again. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was, it was tough. 
Um, but I very quickly got to know people and I just have never encountered such a feeling of kind of of just human intimacy and warmth. Um, I've never had such a rich collection of kind of friendships as I had in, in India. It was absolutely the human element of being in India was extraordinary to me. Um, and well, I say never, but the last time I had that kind of experience was with my old college friends when I was at Cambridge. And many of my old college friends uh, most of my closest old college friends still live in the UK. Um, and many of them, most of them still live in London or within easy traveling distance of London. So I was already feeling that really I wanted to, um, I, I, I wanted to, I was actually thinking of living in India, but that was just visa wise was gonna be too, too difficult was probably not going to happen. Um, but I thought I felt, um, you know, I don't, I'm getting older. Um, and I don't want to be completely focused on dance for the rest of my life. Um, and because in India, I switched over, I started working for ARIO. Um, I started doing some writing and podcasting and other things. And I remembered how much I enjoyed that more intellectual life. And um, that combination made me feel that I wanted to return to the UK um, and be around those old friends of mine who um, I'm still close to and who I find very, uh, and also just to be closer to a kind of more intellectual hub or um, here in London, I'm able to meet people who I've interviewed on podcasts and I'm able to, well, I'm not actually because of COVID, but hopefully at some point we yeah. will get out to the other end of this. Right. Someone will come and jab me in the bottom and I will be ready for life again. <laughs> and, but you know, here it's possible to meet the kinds of people that I um, talk to on uh, political and social and other intellectual topics. Mm -hmm. um, and um, move the, that kind of area of my life from purely online into the real world as well. So, uh, and then I came in January um, to look for somewhere to live. And um, one of my old, one of my oldest friends and several other friends who, are, who I'm also close to um, have a, um, my friend is a vicar and they live in the vicarage. They live in an East London vicarage and it's a big house um, and they had a bedroom free. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a normal rental situation. It's not like they were looking for somebody to rent this room out to. Um, no, they were only going to give, uh, let somebody move in if it was a, a, a personal friend of theirs. So previously, um, the son of one of my housemates was living here. Um, and But he's now living with his girlfriend and there was a free space. And um, these are three guys, these are four guys I really like very much. And um, it's a 
wonderful house. It's a beautiful house and it's in a lovely, it's in a, um, I won't reveal where it is for security reasons, <laughs> sure. but it's in a really, really lovely spot. It's absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a nice living situation that I, I thought, okay, I definitely need to come back because I should jump at this. So that's what has happened. It's, so there's a certain amount of serendipity that was involved um, in, in a couple of these things, which um, you should, too often we discount the role of luck in um, what we do in our lives or the things that can be shaped by it, I suppose. Um, I've never been to London. It's on my to go, you know, to visit places. Um, I'm fascinated in some ways by British history. So I would love to uh, engage in some of that. But from everything I've heard, and my best friend has been there a couple of times, he absolutely loves the, the city. Can't stand New York, but loves London. And uh, so I, one of these days, I would like to make it across the pond, you know, yeah, post the plague uh, to experience that because there is a certain amount of uh, crossroads of the world that London has had for a long time. And I think it would be very fascinating to at least be able to experience it temporarily. But it there's a certain amount of uh, charm that I suppose that would come from not just visiting these places, but living in them. And uh, I, I didn't know, since we've only really ever interacted on Twitter, and then uh, you edited a piece or two of mine that um, Ariel was kind enough to publish, that, uh, that Tango had been such a central piece of your life. Um, did you enjoy more of that of your life or more of the intellectual side? Obviously, you've returned more to the intellectual side here, but which one did you enjoy being in the academy when you were, or did you enjoy more of your time outside of it? Um, I was not cut out to be a good academic. So one of the reasons that I, that was one of the reasons I left academe. Um, I was really not a successful academic. Um, there were a number of reasons. One was that I had a really hard time um, being being productive writing-wise, and part of that was not that I disliked writing, but that that um, academic writing, at least the article side of it, is just it feels so pointless. Uh, it felt like I was trying really hard to find some obscure um, angle on some obscure topic in order to fulfill the kind of originality requirements. And then I never tried to write in the academy's style, you know, that gobbledygook style that yes. they have. Um, but I, I knew that I was then publishing the journal and the only people who'd read it would be other people who are writing articles on some similar topic who needed to cite it in their bibliography or something. And um, I found it very difficult to motivate myself. And um, I also just didn't seem to be interested in the kinds of things that, that worked for a publication. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is that unfortunately I am, I really did not enjoy teaching at all. And whenever I say that, I feel like a bad person. Um, in fact, that was part of the problem, especially when I was in the States. The feeling uh, was to be a teacher is just 
uh, to be a good person. Mm. I mean, it takes more than that, of course, it takes of course. some skill as well and things. Um, but I, um, I have done a postgraduate teaching qualification, um, which I think no longer exists. <laughs> I think they phase this out, but the PGC in higher education, I, I did this one year, like MA. Um, and um, I also was, I, I had training and I observed people's classes and people observed my classes and I had feedback and all of those kinds of things. Um, so I tried my best, but really um, students did not respond well to me. They did not like me. I don't have mm. a, um, I just don't have a kind of nurturing, warm, maternal, cheerleading, hand-holding kind of personality. Um, and I think particularly for women, um, that is what stu students respond best to. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to fake it. Um, it's unsatisfying and also very difficult to, to come across as somebody you're not. Um, yep in the classroom setting. It's not like you have to do this for one hour a week. It's like many hours, you know, right. um, you're not going to be able to keep it up. Uh, I would not be a good spy. I can't like keep up <laughs> this cover. Um, and I just, um, I am not diplomatic. I tend not to have a filter when I say things. Um, I think I, I think I said when I was a child, some people thought that I had Asperger's. I, do, I don't have Asperger's. I definitely don't have Asperger's. Um, my theory of mind is perfectly robust. I just, for some reason, I'm very bloody minded about um, when I think something is wrong. Um, and I will tell people I think that and I will kind of stick to my guns. Um, maybe the Scottish side of me, you know, I'm just that is not a personality that is good for the classroom at all. So, and I found it incredibly dispiriting because really the judgment was not, for example, if you're not a very good dancer, that's one thing that might, you might find it very hurtful to discover right. that, especially if you've invested a great deal of your ego in becoming a great dancer. Um, but it's, uh, nobody sees that as being a character flaw. Uh, whereas if you're not a if you're not a good teacher, it's because you're just kind of a bitch, you're a bad person. Right. Um, and so I really um, um, I had a lot of bad moments reading student evaluations, crying and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so I think that was probably the major factor in leaving. Um, of course, there were always some students who, who, um, who responded well to my teaching. Um, and I once had a Russian student who said, I want you to destroy me. <laughs> <laughs> Do not spare me your critiques. <laughs> um, but I think that I my personality is really um, too confrontational for this, uh, um, this line of work. Um, and um, um, yeah, it made me feel like a bad person. I felt like a bad person all so, so much of the time. 
So that is why I, I left. And everybody else seemed to love teaching. Everyone was like, it's so wonderful nurturing people and <laughs> being in the classroom. And it's yeah. like, um, and I, everybody else seemed to want to give the students a kidney. And I did not want to give them a kidney. Um, <laughs> I mean, I want them to do well, but I want, I, you know, I want them to do well by working and understanding the material and, and kind of making articulate points and things like that. that um, that's, it's so interesting because I'm just at the very tail end of my graduate training. Um, I actually just <clears throat> am scheduling my defense here in the next coming week. So I'm at the very tail end. And it is very interesting the difference. Um, anyone who hasn't gone through sort of a, a PhD training, the way in which you are trained to interact with other people is fairly combative. Um, now, that's not like gladiatorial, but it is um, here's a certain amount of reading, here's what the uh, literature is. And in your seminars, you don't spend tons of time like necessarily learning about the thing that you've read. It's really, and maybe your experience was different, but this has certainly been mine, that you spend a lot of time taking apart whatever has been presented there in an attempt to understand it, but also in an attempt to engage with other people in a kind of um, intellectual combat from time to time, which is not very conducive to teaching an 18 year old who doesn't know how to fold their laundry, how to read uh, Samuel Johnson or someone like this. Um, that's a very different kind of technique or approach. And sometimes, you know, grad school can feel like a giant missed high five from what you are doing in the training versus what you're expected to do outside of the training. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's been your experience, but I, I think that, that that certainly has been some of mine. Your comment about the uh, arcane uh, labyrinthine process of publication and the, where it feels like you're screaming into a void that hits me on such a visceral level. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, because there's a there's such a truth to it. Uh, I, I think you've interviewed him before, Brian Earp. Yes, um, twice actually. Oh, really? How yes. I, had, I didn't come across it, but he's um. What a lovely online presence he has, and mm. what a lovely presence yes. he must have. You see, person. Brian is Brian is the kind of apotheosis of teacher personality. Yeah, and I'm like the opposite of Brian. He is just, I, when I say he's nice, I don't mean to imply it's fake. Mm. I think a lot of people um, don't respond well to the word nice because they think that means just observing a certain etiquette. Right. Um, but no, he's just genuinely, he just exudes loveliness like some kind of saint. Yeah. Um, I do not exude loveliness. That That's the problem. <laughs> I, uh, I, I aspire in some ways to be like Brian. People tell me that I'm too Midwest, Midwestern, and I'm mid Midwestern nice. That's fine. I don't, I, it's not an insult to me. But he, he talks about the, the problem in academia. You know, one of the, his essays that I like is on bullshit <laughs> and sort of the, the fact that there is just something about it and it's that need to constantly publish that where instead of, you know, intellectualism being something that you do, it's a product that you have. It's not mm -hmm. really a process of learning or, or engagement. It, it really is a CV booster. And I think you're right that there's a certain kind of personality that's well-suited to that. I'm not sure that's the same personality that's well-suited to teaching. Yeah, no, I think I'm just uh, ill-suited to both, um, really. Um, 
Well, and it's unfortunate to get all the way through the process and be have been hired at a university and, and being in the trenches, so to speak, until you before you learned that. Um, that's one again, one of those major gaps, perhaps in graduate schools that, you know, to, there's not enough honesty on what your life is going to be when you wake up on a Tuesday morning. Mm. And um, which I think is one of those here coming at the end is one of the great flaws in the way that we do graduate training. I, my guess is the stuff in the UK is not miles different from the US. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, so um, I think my problem was partly that I was kind of modeling. Uh, at first, my problem was that I was modeling my teaching on what I had received myself as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I went to, so um, I went to Cambridge, which was not entirely typical, but um, uh, the way that our main, um, I don't want to get into it in huge detail, but our main uh, focus teaching wise was what we called supervisions, what you might think of as tutorials or something like that. We have all this Cambridge specific lingo. Um, uh, like we live in a staircase and uh, yeah, and you get rusticated. You can be rusticated if it's you like, do something wrong. It's like Hogwarts, like right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> rusticated is wonderful. You'll be sent back to your, it's like the beginning of As You Like It, you'll be sent there to kind uh, of <laughs> look after <laughs> your sheep and cows. Um, but um, I, so at the supervision, what happens is in the week running, um, going up, um, running up to the supervision, you write an essay um, and we had a lot of free choice of topics within a certain framework. So, you know, each, each semester we were working on a specific period of English literature. Um, and within that we had a lot, we had pretty much free reign over what texts we wanted to look at and stuff. So you choose your subject, you write your essay, you slip it under your tutor's door by midnight the night before. And then in the actual supervising, in the actual session, um, the um, we would have to defend what we'd written in our essay. So, so the so the kind of teaching experience would be, um, you had to go and do the reading and decide what you wanted to write on and put together your essay on your own, and then you came in to have your essay taken to bits mm. by your supervisor. I say taken to bits, some people were more uh, Socratic in that process and um, others were were more kind of ruminative. And there was one, there was one um, fellow, as we call them, one professor who was, um, would always ask these open-ended questions and then, and then he would um, lapse into meditative silence. He'd be like, it's most interesting that you made that point about Alexander Pope, don't you think? And then he would just look at you in dead silence. Um, and of course, uh, you know, at Cambridge, you can do that. You can just be an eccentric professor. Well, I don't know if you still can, but certainly in my day, um, and back in the, back in the, Pleistocene. That's the um, pre-Cambrian era, right? Yes, exactly. It was before the Cambrian explosion. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, it, uh, in the US, certainly you're, you're not expected to teach that way. No. You have to have 
you have to be very much in your best behavior, very careful about how you're projecting yourself, about what you're saying to students. And I have also never been able to be on my best behavior. Um, I, I am just really not good at, um, I'm not good at diplomacy and I'm not good at um, following etiquette rules and things like that. Um, well, and and that, I'm not good at, you know, not, I'm not good at refraining from saying what I mean. I've got a little bit better at this as I've got older. I've mellowed slightly, but still, I think that, um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bloody minded argumentative person. And that's just not the personality they're looking for, which I think is a shame. You know, it's a shame that they can't. Um, it's a shame that there isn't room for that. Mm -hmm. Um but but really, um, there isn't, or at least I was just constantly meant, made to feel that I was just a horrible person for being who I am. Well, and, and student evals are notoriously, um, let's be soft here, <laughs> troublesome. <laughs> yeah, we allow students to write anonymous hate mail about us, basically, to well, us. And uh, it's it's absurd. <laughs> I mean, I I I'm six one, and I'm I, my wife is always telling me how broad shouldered I am. So when I walk into a room, and I don't when I teach, I don't I don't talk any louder than this. And I'll be in a room with you know 70, 80 people, and I just expect them to listen. And I don't have a problem doing that. I have the stature, you know, my biology has helped me a great deal in my teaching female women instructors just don't have that and there's such a, a climb and I, I would see this with my fellow grad students who were teaching or even some of our female faculty members the student feedback is can just be um, disheartening is not even strong enough they will be brutal on women in a way that just not on men and which I don't, you might be right. I'd never really thought about it. They expect it to have this sort of motherly quality that, um, well, men just don't have. <laughs> and so the expectation is never there for them to have it. So there's a certain amount of combativeness that I think male instructors can get away with in some ways that females can't, which is bizarre to me because some of the most influential people in my training have been very combative female instructors who I would not have learned one-tenth had they not had that personality. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I come at that from a very, I don't know, tolerant is the wrong phrase. Um, gratitude is the right one to have something thrown into a tumbler and beat up. So at the other side, it's like, that was really painful, but I'm not going to make that mistake again. Or I've learned so much through the suffering that it was worthwhile. I do think that that would be more beneficial for some students to go through. Um, that is certainly not the expectation that most students have when they come in. I think because in, in most instances, frequently students think that uh, your job is to profess <laughs> instead of to guide. And I think it's more of a guiding mechanism. It's not, I'm not the, what do they call it? The sage on the stage. That's not really mm -hmm. what my, to me, my approach to teaching is not that at all. But I can definitely understand or see that um, how dispiriting it would be to be told constantly that, especially after you've gone through the training and had that behavior modeled for you, to then be told 
then not only are you doing it incorrectly, you're a bad person because you're doing it incorrectly, which is absurd. <laughs> um, you know, we don't, we, that kind of behavior is what you would celebrate in a lawyer um, or even in a politician to some extent. Well, I think it's also, it, I mean, it's not all training. It's really a question of personality fits. Um, uh, you know, it it's because I'm a this bloody-minded pedantic person who doesn't let go of mistakes that I'm a good editor, for example. Um, yes, you are. Yes. Um, in our interactions together, you've made my writing clearer, and uh, which is good. Um, that's one of the one of the pieces that you wrote that I, I so gravitated and understand. I really struggle. And I think a lot of academics or people who've been trained as academics really struggle to convey what they've been trained to people who have not been trained in it and to jump over the jargon barrier. And mm -hmm. I, my mm -hmm. writing struggles with that a great mm -hmm. deal, which is why I don't write nearly as much as I should. And, but yours, you were very helpful in understanding that most people aren't going to A, know what the hell you're talking about or B, have any idea of why you're talking about it that way. And um, so that as a, an editor, why, actually, why don't you speak on that, the way in which you approach these editing processes and, and why you think about editing in the way that you do? Right. Mm, oh, that's a, that's a big topic. Let me see, where, 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 shall I, where shall I start? I have the John Muir problem here, which is, you know, if you take hold of one tiny thread, you'll find the entire universe is attached to it. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so I think that um, um, so academic writing has very specific problems. So I'll start from there with with academics. Um, one of the problems is. Um, I, th I think that part of this problem, I don't know if it actually stems from the influence of postmodernism, this particular mm -hmm. um, writing related problem. So I'm not talking about ideas here. When I talk about postmodernism, yeah. I'm not talking about a postmodernist approach or ideas or whatever. Um, but I wonder how much stems from that and how much is just uh, professional anxiety. But academics are constantly hedging. Yes. You cannot get them to just say a thing. It's always, well, if one were to be examining this from this particular point of view, I think it would be important to note that perhaps one might consider that looked at from some angles, we might see a certain degree of what we might be able to describe as, or what someone once called, or which is perhaps adjacent to the idea of, um, you know, it. I've had people do whole paragraphs which where they have literally not said anything. It's all throat clearing. <laughs> yes. It's all carefully announcing that you're about to say something and apologizing for the fact that you're about to say something and trying to obviate all criticisms before you've actually said the thing, which is impossible. It's like you're kind of, it's the kind of equivalent of telling your reader, please now do a pinky swear that you're going to not get offended um, by anything I say, or, and, uh, or you're not going to blame me for having left out anything I've left out here. Yeah. And some of them start writing like lawyers. You know how lawyers have those endless lists of synonyms? Yes. Um, 
<laughs> uh, so that you cover all, all your bases. You know, here in this house, flat, domicile, dwelling place, um, houseboat, um, apartment, right. um, <laughs> other form of shelter, etc. Lots of academics write like that as well, um, with these endless, um, supposedly exhaustive lists. And it is completely counterproductive because as soon as you um, make this claim that your list is exhaustive, and people have this problem with intersectionality too, as soon as you start saying, I'm including everybody, you're never going to remember everybody. Right. And somebody is going to be upset by not being included in lists. You, you have to generalize. Um, you have to say, okay, our thing is open to all, not our thing is open to straight people, gay people, right. bisexual people. And then somebody's like, well, what about asexual people? Oh, and asexual people. And we're also open to people with dis with who are, have hearing difficulties and people who have, have autism and people who have this and people who have that. And then somebody's going to put their hand up and say, I'm not on this list. Yeah, what I mean. right. Does that mean it's <clears throat> I'm excluded? Um, so this kind of idea that you can obviate criticism before you begin and cover all of your bases so that nobody can think there's any incompletion there you have to abandon that. And it's completely disables you from writing, from actually saying the thing that you want to say. So that's the first thing. Um, and there's this endless periphrasis of kind of phrases that are beating around the bush and, and not actually saying the thing. Um, and people mistake me for, when I say this, for... Um, um, for not recognizing that, of course, certain technical fields or specialized um, specialized fields have necessary jargon, i.e. a word that ex expresses a concept um, that you could express, that you do actually understand clearly, and you could actually express clearly in other words, but it would take a lot longer, and everybody understands this shorthand. That's great. Um, that's fine. But this is about a kind of a jargon that is not intended to clarify. So that kind of jargon is intended to clarify. Mm -hmm. um, if I say tumor suppressor genes, what I'm doing is I'm clearly expressing a concept um, that it would take a long time to explain, but that if you're in the field, you probably already know what tumor suppressor genes are, so you're going, you're going to get it. Right. Whereas this is a kind of jargon which is nobody knows exactly what it means or what it's referring to, um, and it it doesn't clarify even to other people within the field what you're trying to say. It just obscures it. What it does is it's pure signaling. It just says to them, I speak this language. I can express myself in this way. Well, and it also, in, in certain, you know, <laughs> I'm definitely guilty of that in my academic writing. I think part of it also is to anticipate an objection from a reviewer. Yes. Because you're yes. not writing to an audience. You're just trying to write over the hurdle. Um, yes, exactly. You're writing to your peers. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's uh, it's very, it's really non-communicative. 
I would say it's kind of the opposite of communication. And a lot of it is obfuscation, not necessarily on purpose. I think there's sometimes just some very sloppy thinking behind it. Um, but often it really is deliberate obfuscation. It's kind of, look how clever I am. I'm so clever. You, the reader, can't understand or make head nor tails of what I'm saying. Um, and of course, I mean, I think in academia, people are very afraid to admit that they don't understand things. And yes. often they don't understand them, not because the concept is complicated, but because the thinking is sloppy and the writing is just a load of bunkum. Basically, <laughs> it's a word salad. Um, well, your, your connection, I'd never thought about putting it in conversation with postmodernism, not again, not in its substance, but by the time you get like all of us would have been taught writing by people who were trained downstream of postmodern thinkers. Yeah. Because they were basically what were what was being taught in the 60s and 70s. And we're all sort of downstream of of that. I'd never put that connection together. That makes a lot of sense, actually, that you uh, you you can't because academic writing before that, like if you go read stuff from the 20s and 30s, is so much more enjoyable. Oh my God, go and read Lionel Trilling. Everybody stop what you're doing. Well, listen to the rest of this podcast yes. and then stop what you're doing and go and read Lionel Trilling. I, it's, He's I probably like, a fascist or something, but I mean, his writing is beautiful. I, well, um, and so I'm not familiar, but I, I'll look that one up. But I, I think about like the difference in my training between someone like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Um, Hobbes is purposely you know d doesn't want people to understand what he's getting at and like tells you up front as opposed to Locke, who's going no i want everyone to be able to read this now you know we have a language barrier there because of time but at the you know uh, the same principle is applying whether you're reading this in the 18th century or whether you're reading it in the 21st century how, how inclusive do you want your audience to be you know or right right uh, and I should say that I don't think things should be dumbed down. So I think it's okay to mm -hmm. take quite a lot of time to unpack or unravel a complex concept. Um, I am very much in favor of long words, quote unquote, your $10 words, because um, I, um, well, I think that um, lengthy and subtle um, um, words often um, enrich a language. So they often allow you to have a greater precision in what you're saying than you otherwise could. And also it's just, um, some words are just extremely beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. um, um, why would you say that, you know, cats are active in the early evening when you could just say cats are crepuscular? Um, <laughs> Right. I, so I don't, it's not that I think we should dumb down our vocabulary to the level of the stupidest person. What I do think is that if someone who, if an intelligent person in your own field cannot understand what you're saying, you're, the problem is you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, generally, generally. I mean, there are some exceptions, but as a general rule, the problem is you can't communicate, not they are too stupid. And I still get, you know, I, I, I mean, people are constantly accusing me of being stupid. And although it seems very vain, this is one reason why I'm always citing my credentials because writers are always saying, 
oh, well, you know, if you were, or they imply, if you were a little bit more intelligent, you would understand what I was trying to say here. And I'm like, I have an IQ of 121, which is not genius level, but I'm not a, you know, it's, um, uh, it's certainly a well above average. I have a Cambridge PhD. I've published an academic book. Um, I'm very well read. If, if I don't understand what you're saying, and it's not a technical subject, mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, computer science or maths or something. It's not a subject in which the natural language would be maths and you are having to translate it into English. That's that's different, okay? Right. If you could express yourself more easily with maths, or even if it would help if you could put a few equations in there, then yeah, I get you. But um, if you're talking about an arts topic or you're making a political argument or talking about a sociological topic, and I cannot understand you, I'm afraid as a copy editor, it's my job to see myself as the reading every woman um, and maybe there are some things I'm too dumb to understand, but generally I think if I don't understand it, it's your problem, not mine. Right. <laughs> uh, which may seem very arrogant. You can see why I wasn't a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but but it's 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 interesting because it's coming from a place that's empathetic at its core. Not you're actually otherizing yourself um, in order to do this. How would someone else perceive this? Um, which you know. I think about my own academic writing and the things that I have that are in the pipeline to get out to get published and all the rest of it and how much of it. So my main area of scholarship is on Aristotle and there is a very different way of speaking to someone who is in, um, who has studied Aristotle and you can go at line, blah, 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 blah. It Greek, it says, blah, 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 blah. That's not, that's something for a specialist. And I think a lot of, and maybe I'm wrong on this, you certainly have a lot more experience with it than I do. You've read a whole lot more from a whole lot wider range than I have. But I, I think that so, so many people confuse uh, their, their focus as a specialist uh, to what a general audience is going to be able to understand. You know, They don't care that Aristotle at line 1147 says blah, blah. What they care is what's the point of reading Aristotle? <laughs> Well, Why they may the care. Important? I think you may be able to make them care about what he says at line X and Y. I think it's more that what they don't care about is some of the sorts of posturing that you have to do uh, in academe to make a case for why you're allowed to say this thing or write this thing. Oh, yeah. So fair. what they don't care about is um, that you have argued this elsewhere in four other papers. <laughs> or um, that um, um, your work is different from the work of X and Y and Z and yeah. whatever. That may be important in academic paper where you have to prove that you're original, but no one is interested in that in an article. And you'd be surprised by how many articles begin with that. Hmm. Um, also, I think um, if you are writing an, um, a... Um, 3000 word article. So we do we don't have a word limit at ARIO, but if you write more than 3000 words, we ask you to waive your writer's fee. Uh, because it, it it's then more work for us and we only have we run ARIO. ARIO is completely funded by our Patreon. So we run it on a very, we have to run a very, very tight ship mm -hmm. um, financially. So if you write more than 3000 words, that's great, but you, we will not pay you. Um, we may still publish, but we, you'll waive your fee. Yeah, that's um, fair. And 
But if you're writing a little 3000 word um, essay, you do not need this tripartite structure of first telling people what you're going to say, then saying it and then telling them that you said it. Right. <laughs> that might be reasonable in a book, although even in a book, I think this is a very tedious and unimaginative way of approaching things. And I would discourage it. Um, but um, definitely in an essay, I think one of the most frequent things that I delete is I just remove entire thesis paragraphs at the beginning of, of pieces. People don't need a roadmap. Um, they don't. And there is also this um, misconception that if your writing is really turgid and hard to understand, you can make it easy to understand by first doing that throat clearing like thesis paragraph of in this essay, I'm going to talk about X, Y, Z and whatever. Um, and by putting in subheadings. When I see subheadings everywhere in, an, in a submission, I'm like, oh no, this is gonna be <laughs> incomprehensible. I, I'm, being, I'm being very unfair, it's not always the case, but often people think they just put the subheading in there and then hey presto, their prose is limpid. Um, that is not what happens. <laughs> um, it's more even more confusing because the reader is just like, how does this subheading even relate to what right. you've gone after? So I would say um, there's so there's just um, I I really delete a lot lot of throat clearing and repetition from most people's writing. Almost everybody's writing can be cut by at least a third and maybe half. Um, and there's really two kinds of writers. And I, it's a question of ego. And I say this with great kindness because I understand completely. Um, I have a huge empathy. Helen and I both have tremendous empathy with the writers who are subjected to, to me. Um, and uh, I, I think, as I said once on Twitter, being an editor is quite similar to being a dominatrix. Um, <laughs> you're like, you just try to, you're, you have to sort of lay down the law. Like, you paid for this, mm. and this, this is how it's going to go. Um, get ready for punishment and pain. Um, and there are some people who read through. And if it reads well, they're like, okay, that's great. And then they have, might have some specific things that they want to hold on to. And there are others who their first approach is to look to see how much I have cut. Mm. And then if it's a lot, they start getting upset. Um, and um, I think that they don't realize that almost everybody, I would say 90% of writers uh, benefit from being pruned quite quite radically um, and it's one of the things that I've done in freelance editing for academics um, I've worked with quite a few academics who have told me um, I don't know what to do you know the word limit is x number of words and this piece is three times as long but I can't see what I could cut um, and they're surprised to find that I can almost always get it within the word limit with kind with ease actually <laughs> um there's there's so much throat clearing stuff that is that can just be removed and there's so much restating of things and sometimes it's nice to have elegant restatings of things 
sometimes you can repeat yourself and it's fun because the, if your writing style is beautiful enough, you can get away with an awful lot. Um, but if it's not, <laughs> uh, then, it's, then it just becomes tedious very quickly. So I think that respecting the, write, the reader's time is the number one thing. The other thing is that, that non-academics tend to have a little bit of the opposite problem, which is that they over-explain. Um, and they tend to treat the reader as if the reader were less intelligent than them. What you were talking about there about writing and then that, this is, um, since we both have a similar tr training or, or universe in the humanities, I wonder how much of that do you connect to like the importance of the humanities that you have a piece on this that people because of it's accessible to a general population in a way that say um, studying organic chemistry is not going to be that there is a sense that it is easy and that it is inferior and that perhaps what we have done to uh, combat that kind of institutional prejudice is this kind of i don't know um, like what Jacques Derrida would always talk about, you know, I, I purposely make this stuff really difficult to understand. So people can't, you know, so it looks like it's more difficult than it is or whatever. If that's just sort of one of the sins that has been committed in the humanities, which turns people off so rapidly to it. Yeah. So I think that there is, people don't like it when I say this, but I think humanities and art subjects are easier than science and maths. Um, because I have certainly, um, I have certainly known some scientists and mathematicians. Um, one of my best friends is a mathematician, and he has never done any. Well, he's uh, the last time he did any um, formal work in the humanities was when he was at high school. Mm. Um, you know, which, as I say, was in the Paleozoic, mm. um, and. But he is, you know, one of the most perceptive um, literary critics, uh, not professionally, but if you want to, if you discuss a book with him or a film, um, he is more articulate, insightful and intelligent about it than most professional um, humanities professors I know. And I've known many professional humanities academics. Um, and so, but the other way round, um, I have, you know, I've never known anybody who was just really good at science and, and maths. Um, we sometimes had at Cambridge when English lecturers were giving lectures because lectures were open to all and they uh, open to all students and um, they were only loosely connected with the syllabus. They really professors would present on books that they were writing or topics they were interested in it was wonderful. It was just uh, uh, the good, lect good lectures were incredibly entertaining. I used to go for fun. And very often um, people who are doing um, natural sciences would come to listen in on lectures on particular writers that they liked, who they had just read for fun. But of course, none of us English majors ever went to <laughs> a lecture on physics. Right. Um, and um, I do really enjoy reading popular science, um, i.e. what I mean is science communication writers like 
Richard Dawkins or Sean Carroll or um, Nick Lane, people of that kind. Mm -hmm. I, I love reading that stuff, reading about the scientific things. Um, but I think that um, it, it, just, it just is harder. There is a, a much steeper learning curve. There is more specialist knowledge and more, there are more specialist skills involved in doing science, um, in doing STEM degrees and in doing arts and humanities. Um, and I think that people try to deny that because they think it's a weakness and they try to hide that by using this obfuscatory language to try to make themselves sound cleverer than they are or to do a sort of intellectual gatekeeping you know to try to make it as difficult for outsiders to know what's going on as it is for outsiders to know what's going on in um in you know the the rapid quenching engineering lab um but I think that's a real mistake. So this, the strength of uh, arts and humanities is precisely that, is precisely the potentially universal appeal. Um, so I, I think that in arts and humanities, um, in science, it's also important to have public communication um, of discoveries and ideas and concepts. Um, and it's also fun. You know, I think if you suffer from anxiety or depression and things like I do, I highly recommend if anybody is listening, um, reading popular science at those moments. Um, it, it, it's incredibly calming and you'll be left with a sense of wonder and awe and ple just pleasure in how, um, in the ingenuity of just how things work, how nature, what nature is like. Um, but that's, obviously only a small part of science, whereas I think in arts and humanities, it's really should be almost all of what we do um, is um, being able to, we have the huge advantage that what we are interested in um, and the aspects of it that we are interested in are immediately communicable and shareable. So and I that needs to be celebrated, not not kind of denied. So I think there are parts of this that I agree with, and this may actually be some of the first stuff that we disagree on, which is good. This is uh, engaging stuff. So I, I tend to agree that there is a much steeper barrier or perhaps climb for people who are engaging in mathematics or in uh, science because of the necessary training, the methodological training that comes along with having to... Um, engage in it. And especially like in mathematics, you're learning a foreign language that is um, not spoken. It, it's something that is, um, you participate in, but it's not an organic language. So I agree with you on that front. Um, and perhaps it's my bias as someone who is engaged in political philosophy. I think in some sense that science is harder there but it's easier on the other side because it doesn't come laden with um, deciding which among multiple claims is the best claim. The method is purposely designed to eliminate that possibility. Um, you're, you're not, if there is a contested um, causal explanation for something, the science isn't settled. 
there's a debate that's constantly ongoing and it's a constant use of that method to try to eliminate as many varieties of explanation as possible. Whereas in something like uh, in the humanities, but, and I guess I speak specifically in what I study in political philosophy, um, it's much more difficult to say, what, how do you answer this question? What is the best way for a human being to live? There are a lot of answers to that question. Mm. There are a lot of wrong answers to that question. How do you determine which ones they are? And what is the rationale that goes behind it? All of the answers are going to be on a certain level unsatisfying. None of them will be fully sufficient. So you're going to have to pick between unsatisfying, insufficient answers, but you still have to live with one individually and collectively. I think that that in some sense is a much more difficult enterprise, not on the front end, because it seems easy because of the barrier access. I agree with you there. But I think on the back end of it, it's significantly more difficult because there isn't a sense of clarity that comes at the end of the enterprise. Um, you're left with um, the Greek is apareia, the sort of, um, uh, you don't know, it's unclear. Um, and I, I think, I agree with you on to a certain degree, but on the other one, I think that um, especially people who are deeply trained methodologically, they have a hard time when there's a lot of ambiguity. Hmm. And if being, I don't know if there's anything else that better describes being human than ambiguity. Um, and so I think perhaps if the humanities thought about itself more like that, we want everyone to come in, but don't expect there to be a lot of comforting answers when you go out which is kind of the inversion of natural science. It's very difficult to come in. We don't want very many people, but once you get here, there's a certain amount of, until you, unless you have a paradigm shift or someone discovers something that completely flips over an entire discipline, things kind of march along. You know, if you're doing physics in the late 19th century, before you get a mathematical version of the theory of relativity, there's a certain amount of predictability, right? They thought physics was over until they figured out that there was a quantum thing and they actually mm. didn't know anything about it. Mm. Um, I don't know that someone could read Plato and get to the end and go, that person had it all figured out. Um, it actually perhaps is against the point of reading someone like that to say that they knew it all. Rather, it's actually the profession of the exact opposite, which in and of itself may not be true. Um, so that's why I have an appeal to it. I, had I not studied this, I think I would have gone into astronomy because I adore the beauty that comes from understanding the patterns. And I just wasn't ever very good at math. So that sort of kept me, precluded me from doing it. Um, so I think on one sense, I agree with you. And in another sense, um, we may have a disagreement. Um, maybe not, I don't know. Mm. But yeah, I, um, I, I'm not sure what to I'm not sure what to say to that. I mean, I, I agree, certainly. And I think that um, one of the reasons why I find kind of political correctness applied to humanities education so stultifying is because in literature, I'll stick with literature because that's what I know. Um, in most cases, I mean, it's not this is not universally true. There are no universals here. But in most cases, the really good literature um, asks, asks the difficult questions and leaves you feeling 
Uh, very good literature is by nature problematic. Being problematic is a good thing. Right. It leaves you, um, it leaves you unsettled. You go in thinking that you know how you feel about a certain topic, and it will unsettle you. Um, it will show you the other side of things. It will make you empathize with something that you with someone you wouldn't have empathized with, with a viewpoint you wouldn't have entertained. Um, and um, it will precisely kind of go straight to and pick at those, those potential points of, of conflict and contradiction and um, discomfort, and it will stress test them. Right. <laughs> um, that, that's, um, and that is the opposite of a kind of politic, of a kind of woke worldview where things that are problematic need to be discarded. Um, or you know, disregarded at, at the very least. I I, I agree um, wholeheartedly with that. That's basically what you just laid out was um, the heart of what my dissertation is on, um, ah. which is um, in Aristotle. Why is poetry useful for political life? Um, and so that's the heart of what my dissertation looks at is is that exact question. And um, my my conclusion on that is. Um, politics relies on a sense of um, understanding the perspective of someone who's like you, but isn't you, that it's not so immediate that the, the pain it overwhelms all of these downstream things. Because um, like a gap between empathy and, and sympathy is an essential one there. I can imagine how painful it would be, but if I'm actually suffering that pain, I'm not worried about you. I'm, it's too painful for me to, you know, to care about someone else, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that politics really has to rely upon a shared sense that we could all suffer the same kind of outcomes. Literature, by participating with it, forces you to engage in that kind of thinking. And um, in that sense, that's where my, I end up concluding. That's why it's useful for politics, um, because it forces us to rely on that same kind of emotional structure. Well, I think, so um, I... I intuitively, um, I don't know that it's ever been proven, but I intuitively do sort of believe in the empathy hypothesis mm -hmm. um, that what you're doing when you're reading a novel, for example, or a poem is immersing yourself in someone else's viewpoint. And therefore that is a kind of a training in empathy. But I also think that it doesn't need to be useful, that um, pleasure is a, a joy is, is enough of a purpose. So a few times people have asked me, what's the point of dancing? Um, and um, I was always stumped as to how to answer it until I saw somebody, uh, someone else answered it for me. And, and she said, the purpose of dance is joy. <laughs> I just thought that was marvelous. Um, that's it. Um, no other purpose is necessary. And I, I wonder to what extent um, there's this kind of ongoing, um, well, it's not an ongoing debate, actually, it's more like, uh, it's, it's more like a kind of truth or a conspiracy theory thing in that it's a debunked thing that keeps raising its ugly head again and again and again, um, which is this idea that if you read violent, if you uh. read or watch depictions of violence, you'll become violent. Um, and I think that um, there is a um, 
maybe there is a pleasure or or need um, or a kind of uh, the, our our own lives are quite narrow. Everybody, I mean, almost everyone's life is quite narrow. The range of experiences that we have and emotions we feel is limited. So I have no idea how it feels to kill somebody. And hopefully I will never feel that. Actually, right. I don't even want to feel that. Um, but when we immerse ourselves in literature, we get to feel all of those things. And we get to experience kind of all of those things, including things we would not want to experience in real life. Um, and maybe that's also what's going on in dreams, that we're just um, breaking free from the constraints of, of what we're normally able to uh, emotionally experience into a much wider range, which is why I'm completely unworried by violent literature. I'm not worried that people reading Lolita are gonna become pedophiles. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I empathize deeply with Humbert Humbert, you know, um, and many other even more despicable characters in literature. Um, I don't know if you read, um, so it's a, a French novel, and I think in French it's called Les Bénévoles. I um, think it was translated into English as uh, something like um, The Kind Ones or mm -mm, um, something familiar. like that. Um, it was very controversial because it's written in the first person um, from the point of view of an um, a prison, he's an SS officer, he later becomes a prison guard at a concentration camp. And um, it's written in his voice and the book, I would, I think it's fair to say the book is deeply sympathetic to him. Um, and I, I, I just thought it was brilliant and it made me feel like very uncomfortable. I felt the whole reading experience was really uncomfortable. Um, because of the humanizing of this of this character. Um, and because you kind of started, uh, because of the sort of active ventriloquism, of kind of mental ventriloquism that is reading, mm -hmm. um, you're just inside his head, inside his voice. Um, so there was, there was a lot of kind of outcry about this book, but I thought it was a, a a superb example of the kinds of possibilities that fiction al allows us. It's a world of play, and I think play is very important for for just having access to a greater range of human possibilities. Maybe that's a very obvious thing to say, but um, well, it breaks the banality, right? That um, of what it comes along. So I'm not. Now that you've described it, I, I remember, I've never read the book, but I, I think I'm aware of it. It makes me think of Aeschylus's play, The Persians, the, the idea that he, within 10 years of them fighting this war, is going to present a play that is going to make you understand and humanize the enemy that you just fought against, and that would have killed people that you knew, maybe of your family members. I've always found that to be a remarkable poem, a remarkable tragedy because I find so few examples of people willing to engage in that kind of um, artistic structure to humanize the enemy that, that wasn't so long ago, to understand that their motivations may not be radically different than your own. And it forces you to engage in your word uh, discomfort, I think is a good one, but it, it's also um, one which 
makes you wrestle with those parts of being human that we want to forget. Um, there's a piece sort of, of being in the enlightenment or the post enlightenment period. I'm not really sure we're there, but we may be in the twilight of it that there's a, um, an emphasis on the positive and a belief in perpetual progress, you know, that eventually through knowledge, we will improve ourselves. We may not be perfectible, but mm -hmm. we can be improved. The Pinkerian thing. Right. You tend to ignore that all of those um, things can also exacerbate the dark part of being human. And that somehow as civilization has moved forward, yeah, I'm like his the, the decline of violence book that you know if it drops on your pet it'll kill it. <laughs> One of those tome books. The bet the better angels. The better angels, right? Yes. Yeah, and um, that, but that even within that, the idea that civilization marches forward with this constant progression, um, human nature hasn't really changed all that much. If there's anything to take away from studying the humanities, it may be that the visceral experience of someone in in ancient Greece or in ancient China the way in which they experience the world, they experience different things than we do. You know, they didn't have air conditioning. They couldn't do podcasting like this. But when something would hit them, they would bleed. They would get hungry. They would have the same kinds of sensations. Their hardware was basically our hardware. It's a reminding that um, within you is you are capable of all of these evil things. And that literature may in some ways not remind us that we're evil. That's not what I'm the point here, but it's to rather say um, that part of you is discomforting. Um, as you feel the discomfort at the behaviors of another, you could engage in that as well. Whether it it's- It makes you, makes you complicit in a sense. You feel, you feel a little bit complicit. I think that is part of the discomfort. Yeah, and and the the idea that video games or movies or literature that portray violence or sex or whatever are going to make you violent sex fiends and this kind of stuff is kind of a caricature that comes out of Plato, and I think it might be a caricature of Plato, but that's a topic for an entirely different thing. But there's this kind of, uh, we want to attribute it to puritanical structures, but it's really a kind of intellectual purity that people seek. And I think in some ways it's an attempt to discount the fact that you could engage in discomforting behavior that, um, you know, that the devil isn't just below you. It might be in you, so to speak. And um, I, I find that to be one of those um, important elements to remind us of what it means to be human isn't just to engage in progress, which is wonderful. I mean, the fact that we're talking in real time connected through wireless, we, we were using the electromagnetic spectrum to connect us in real time, where you're in London, and I'm just outside of Madison, Wisconsin. This is wizardry, right? This is amazing. Mm -hmm. But we're both still human and capable of, you know, the same fall that Eve took, um, that uh, while our capacities have radically increased, our uh, limitations may not have. And I think for me, anyway, that's what literature and storytelling is. So um, it, it, it's not useful in that sense that the way you were describing prior, but its effect may have a utility in that sense. It, we may not do it for the utility, but it may be a secondary benefit. Mm. Um, well, I, I mean, I think you're alluding here to the Solzhenitsyn thing. In of, some sense, you yeah. Know, the, 
yes, the, the divide between good and evil runs straight through the heart of every man. Right. Um, I'm not I'm not quoting that at all accurately, but that's the sentiment. Um, and um, I mean, I uh, I'm a I'm a radical non-believer in free will. Um, so, of course, I don't behave or think or feel like I, you know, I behave and think and feel like I be believe in free will on a on a normal day to day basis. Um, I think it's impossible not to. I think it's uh, it's just impossible. That's just how we evolved. Um, but uh, at a at a deep level, um, I don't I don't believe in free will. So I I don't think anybody. Um, I don't think we are able to choose who we are. Um, therefore, um, although obviously we should behave as though we're able to choose, and we do behave as though we're able to choose, but I. Um, I don't find it a really possible at kind of a kind of a deep level to think of people as evil. Um, I think that that Sam Harris once said that if if you are not a, a psychopath, um, the fact that you are not a psychopath is not your merit. That's your luck. It's your extreme good luck that you do not have that personality. Um, and I, I agree with that. Of course, I think that, um, uh, you know, you need to, uh, people need to be punished um, and um, for the protection, people need to be incarcerated for the protection of others and maybe even for their own protection, et cetera. Uh, so I, I don't mean to say there shouldn't be consequences, but I do think of it as like, I, I, I do feel that at a very deep level, we don't have control. So I don't find the idea of, of the evil person a very um, convincing one. As a shorthand for these, ide the, these ideas they have and the things they're saying and doing is bad, we must combat that. Okay, fine. But at the more kind of profound level, I don't really believe in that. Um, it's interesting because then there's a certain sense, um, and when I've read Harris's stuff on this a bit, there's a kind of noble lie that's at work here. I, I remember when someone asked Christopher Hitchens about this, do you believe in free will? And he said, well, I don't have a choice not to. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> how wonderfully pithy, right? That's terrific. Um, <laughs> exactly. Precisely. I think that's amazing. <laughs> but, um, but there's a certain sense that uh, if there isn't, and I don't know, I haven't spent enough time studying these things. I here's, here's an academic distinction for you. I've read this, but I haven't studied it. Like my eyes have gone over the words, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not sure that I've, I've really wrestled with it enough. Um, and that's a true in a lot of these psychological or philosophical in this sense uh, ideas. But we have to, our ethical structures are predicated on people being held accountable for their actions. Um, and I can understand why people think that that's sort of a fault line. If you crack that, then uh, what's the foundation for holding people accountable and the ethics, you know, this kind of stuff. But where uh, I do in a certain sense, because I think Harris gets there um, sort of neurologically that, that um, the, our biology has so much to do with that. And that's where the luck element is, right? And if I'm wrong, please correct me, but I think that's where he gets. Yes, yes. Uh, I, uh, there's a book by um, Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue that he wrote in the 80s. 
that's part of the um, the big debate on uh, you get from some John Rawls, you know, the idea of uh, where libertarianism really kind of comes to its fruition, you know, uh, do we want <clears throat> equal opportunity or equal outcomes? That whole debate sort of this is swirling around that. McIntyre's book puts forward perhaps a different way of understanding agency, which is to say that you aren't really a self-creation. Uh, you are, in his language, encumbered. You, you are born into a whole lot of traditions and a whole lot of environments that so deeply influence the way in which you construct your sense of self that you can't really escape that notion. Does that mean you lack free agency? No, but on the other hand, there are certain things that if you were to be dropped into the 15th century, the world would be completely unintelligible to you. Not just because of the language barrier, but the way in which they conceive of the universe is so dramatically different than yours. You would be, I mean, not a fish out of water. You would be a fish in this in space. <laughs> it would be so alienating. You would never. Mm -hmm. Is that a rebuke of the idea of free will? I'm not sure, but I do think it speaks to the idea that uh, the way in which human beings come to make sense of themselves is both universalized in that there's a human experience, but it's also tremendously particularized that, um, you know, again, the, even a century or and a half ago or whatever, or in the 18th century, the, the, the literature that you have an expertise in that I don't have an expertise in, the way in which they conceive of the relationship between man and God is very different than the way people think of it in the 21st century. There wasn't really a notion of the God of the gaps, so to speak. Um, oh, there was, there was. I actually think, I think that the 18th century, to me, the 18th mm -hmm. century is the first time that people's, um, that kind of mismatch that you're talking about um, ceases, to, ceases to be. Um, i.e. if we went back, if you went back to the 18th century, um, there would be a few things that would be a bit odd, but I think you would by and large be able to understand and relate to their worldview. Um, Interesting. Really? Why so? I, I think, so I think this is also why we call it the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. because, I, um, well, um, I guess that the, the, fundamental thing about it or the fundamental value that we took from it that really became uh, became important in the in in Britain at least um, in the late end of the 17th beginning of the 18th century um, is the sapere aude thing don't trust authority mm -hmm. but try to find things out for yourself um, and a lot of the um ideas that we would find so alien are are alien to us because they are drawn from authorities that we no longer trust um so it, you're no longer kind of looking to aristotle to know you know what uh what men are and what women are and how conception occurs or whatever right um you're no longer um people no longer literally believe in or many people no longer literally believe in sacred texts um it's very hard for me to get 
inside the mindset of kind of early Zoroastrians or something like that. Even when I'm reading the Zoroastrian holy text, it's really um, the emphases in there are so weird. I'm, I'm try, I'll try not to go off on too much of a tangent. I do tend to be, you know, like in Tristram Shandy, he says, digressions, they are the life, the sunshine, they are the thing itself. Right. So <laughs> that's my approach. Um, but um, the emphases are so weird. You know, there's like 30 pages on how to treat different types of animals. Um, and there's nothing about love, sex, marriage, and relationships between men and women. Um, but there's all this stuff about, um, you know, whether a hedgehog is a better animal than her. <laughs> um, and um, there's clearly a, a completely different system going on there. Um, and kind of parts of that system I've just, I, I've kind of, I've sort of absorbed. Um, you know, I think, I think after death, the best thing, the best thing to do in death, not after death, who knows what goes on then, right, sure. but the best thing to do in death is to be placed on a tower and eaten by vultures. It just makes the most intuitive sense. Return to the cycle of nature. Sure. Allow your flesh to mount up to the heavens in the, in the stomachs of birds. Um, and, you know, I also firmly believe that dogs are sacred. Um, and my wife would probably agree with you. We just got our first dog. So she's, oh, she's at eight. She just turned eight months. So oh. she's. <laughs> is she there? She's downstairs eating lunch right now. So ah, she's, okay. yeah. oh. I'll send you a picture of her though. I, I can Thank do that. You. Yes. Um, but mostly I just, I, I find it really hard to imagine, but as soon as the enlightenment happens, um, as soon as you get to, Parses of the late 17th century onwards, you're not going to have any difficulties. Um, there might be a few things that are weird. So you might think, well, a Parsis, when the British were culling, were killing stray dogs, were culling the stray dogs in the streets, Parsis rioted. You might find that weird. Um, you might not be able to relate to this, that that, that was a more important issue to them than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, that is. So that's that scriptural authority-based mindset. Killing dogs is more important than killing humans because dogs are actually mentioned in the text as hmm. specifically holy. Um, but um, the as soon as you get to the Enlightenment, uh, anybody who is sort of touched by that thinking, um, you can go back and relate to their worldview. And it doesn't matter if they're um, where they are in the globe. Um, but as soon as there is this release from, we put all of our, we farm out our intellect to, um, to sacred, we, to, we have this kind of by proxy intellect, we farm out our thinking to sacred texts um, that form the kind of pillars of authority that are unquestioned. As soon as you get away from that worldview, you can relate to people. Um, so I, that's, I, my, that's my thought. So I think if you went into late 17th century London, if I plopped you down a coffee house, I think you would not have, obviously many things, you'd have some culture shock, but 
I think you would not have any problem relating to people's way of thinking and speaking. And that's why, uh, you know, when I read Samuel Johnson, for example, who is my favorite of the Enlightenment um, writers, um, I just, there's, there's some devout belief in a Christian God and stuff, which I can't really relate to. But apart from that, there's nothing Johnson says that, that isn't instantly relatable. That so, it doesn't require any translation. So I think I agree with you in one sense. Um, like um, when I read Thomas Jefferson, even when I read Locke, right, of a century apart, um, they feel like they're neighbors in one sense. Because I they um because they do have that fundamental presumption of doubting authority, I'm not I'm I'm more skeptical that everyday people believed that in the way that everyday people today do. I think that's true among sort of elite circles or the literary class. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure if that would be true. You know, I think of like Rousseau's house getting stoned literally in Geneva because he comes out and basically rejects the account of Adam and Eve. And um, that wasn't coming from the literary classes that was coming from the, you know, the people. And so I wonder if that there is a gap and maybe that's where we can trace the origin of it is. So I think it is so weird today that we value dissent over conformity or that we, we value um, skepticism over certainty. Widely speaking, sort of like everyday normal people are, you know, will couch and hedge and as you put it throat clear uh on so many of these things um that i i just i don't get the sense of that from everyday people in the 18th even in the 19th century there's a certain level of certainty in that you know you do this and this is how you're a good person and then you go to heaven or whatever that is i think that's where the gap would be so i, th I agree with you in terms of the literary class i think that mm. i agree completely i don't know how how effective that stuff had permeated out, you know, Tom Paine has a hard time uh, fitting in on either side of the channel uh, because of the radicalness, which today is centrism. And uh, so I think perhaps that's what I mean by anytime you'd go back, the value system may exist, but I'm not sure how much it is proliferated. Um, yeah, well, I think though that the relatability isn't um, the relatability isn't completely dependent on that because we do understand people clinging to irrational mm -hmm. ideas, um, and um, you know I encounter this all the time when I've become sort of an in intactivist. Mm. Let's not get into this topic yeah. in great detail. <laughs> That's really getting into the weeds, but um, so. I've become kind of something of an accident. I'm an accidental intactivist. Mm. Um, and so I'm constantly encountering people who just have a completely irrational view um, about something, yeah. uh, about, you know, circumcision. And um, so that's kind of a small example of irrationality. And if we take a very large example, so for example, the site the archaeologists found in, I think it was in, um, Peru or Bolivia, where there had been mass sacrifices of llamas and children, um, and they had clearly been uh, buried alive. Um, mm. And uh, it looks from the archaeological record like there was some 
major environmental catastrophe around that time. So this was probably a propitiatory act. Right. Um, and I think that it, even though that might seem incredibly alien to us. So if you, if rather than the 17th century coffee house uh, in your little time machine, you landed there. Right. Um, I don't want to land there. I want to land in the coffee house. Exactly. But, never, but nevertheless, I also understand, I also understand um, because if we, it's a, it's a completely human impulse that we all have magical thinking. It's kind of, if I, um, if I, you know, like I don't like to speak ill of my microphone because it's a little bit, the connection is a little bit dodgy, but that's fine. You're a very lovely microphone. Um, it, this is the same impulse, the kind of propitiatory, yeah. you're powerless, it, it, you're powerless in, in the face of this terrible thing. Um, and so you're going to just try something, everything, anything to see if it works, even if it doesn't seem rational. You're going to go onto Gwyneth Paltrow's website, um, a fr uh, you know, an acquaintance of mine who had a stage four cancer. This is a terribly sad story, but mm. she was just convinced that she would be cured by uh, from, um, you know, drinking carrot juice and um, doing chakras and stuff. Um, and refused to have chemotherapy. There was, it, it was a it was a horrible tale. But we all understand that impulse of, I feel powerless. Well, there must be something. There must be something I can do. I can't not. Um, and the larger the kind of thing that you're asking, you can see a logic in the larger de the demand you're making, the greater the sacrifice has to be. You can see that people, the reason they sacrifice their children is not because they didn't love their children. It's because they loved their children. So therefore they had to give right. something. They gave the, the thing that was most precious to them. Right, exactly. So I think that it's, I mean, we really haven't changed since, since um, the great leap forward for how, what, how many years ago it was, 20,000, 20, 50,000, yeah. I don't know. Right. Um, our hardware, as you say, haven't, hasn't changed. Yeah. And therefore, even if the specifics of the worldview might be, might seem odd to us, I think that we can understand the mechanics of almost any worldview. Um, I agree with that. I'm not sure that, th that the other side would be as receptive to trying to understand ours. I think mm. that's what makes it this era unique is, um, well, Nietzsche kind of puts it this way, that um, we want to become world travelers in history, that I want to be able to put on all my different hats. Um, and I am perplexed by people who don't understand the value of the hat wearing. Um, that no, there's one hat and only one hat. And if you put on a different hat, we'll kill you. Where us, it's this is absurd. Of course, there are a bunch of different hats. Why can't I put on the different hats? Um, that's where I'm saying, I think that's where the gap would be. In, in, I think you're right. I think we could understand it. We may even be able to relate to it. Would the inverse be true? And um, this mm -hmm. is a hypothetical. I'm not sure we have good answers for because most of these people were illiterate. So we have no idea what they thought. Mm -hmm. um, and the people who were literate thought that they were all just a bunch of, you know, you know, dirt kickers. <laughs> they, it, wasn't, it wasn't the charitable views. 
Um, but I think, yeah, I tend to agree that we can comprehend it. That may be one of the great benefits of studying history is so that we can understand and comprehend it. I'm not sure how much that would be reciprocated outside of, say, the mid part of the 19th century onward. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it is in the 18th century. I'm not, I'm yeah, not as well versed the 18th, in it. I would say the 18th is when it begins. Um, um, uh, it's um, 1733 was the last time someone was burnt for witchcraft. Um, and that was not by the state. That was by the inhabitants of a small village. Mm -hmm. um, and it it made the news because that was no longer, that was um, an outrageous thing at that point in history. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a century previously, it had been the norm. Yeah. I mean, um, and, 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 you know, 150 years previously, it had been the state that was doing the burning. Right. I mean, it's it, the, the map on... Um race and lynchings and all the rest maps almost perfectly on top of that. You just shift the whole thing 200 years. Um, also, I will say to throw out, um, I'm deeply sympathetic to um, your intactivism. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, that, um, so, so in that sense, yeah, we don't need to go on the into that, but I, uh, I was deeply sympathetic to it before I knew there was a word for it. So, mm -hmm. um, and um, so very much in that. So, I, but you have been tremendously generous with your time to me, so I'm not going to keep you any further, um, though there are plenty of other topics I would love to explore with you. Um, I think for uh, to be uh, aware of your time and perhaps also to the listener's time, uh, we maybe need to wrap it up there. Um, so I want to thank you very much for coming on and, and spending this much time with me. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, um, so I just want to say thank you. Uh, is there no, somewhere where pleasure. people where people can come find you? Uh, you have your <clears throat> podcast, The Two for Tea, I think. Yes. Is... I don't know if you have show notes. Might be easier to okay. put things as links. Yes. But um, briefly, um, you can find my writing at Ario Magazine. Um, please, the 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 name Ario. We didn't we didn't invent the name. We inherited. We Helen Pluckrose purchased the magazine from the founder. And that name is the bane of my life. It is not <laughs> Oreo, like the cookie, and it is not um, Aero, um, you know, like aeronautics. It is A-R-E-O, um, short for Areopagitica, as you said, which is um, John Milton's 1614 Treatise on Free Speech. Um, so um, if you look up my name in Ario, you can find my, my political writings there. Um, I haven't been writing as many essays because I am working on my uh, new book, my fourth book. And um, I have several other books, which you can find if you really want. Um, Anxious Employment, and I have a two-volume book that is about the sociology and kind of psychology of the world of dance. It's not a dance instruction book um, called Our Tango World. And then I have a podcast, as you said, um, two for tea. Um, you can access short public versions and, and full-length versions are reserved for patrons. You can support us on Patreon or Subscribestar. Um, and um, also, if you're interested in my Indian experiences, I'm writing a book about, um, uh, which is going to be partly about India, then uh, you can find those at my um, India blog, which is called Fire and Vultures. It's on WordPress. So if you look for Fire and Vultures and WordPress, you will find it. Um, 
wonderful. Yeah. I hope everybody goes and checks all this out. Um, you, you are a wonderful presence frequently on Twitter as well. Um, that's how we've interacted mostly. So again, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, I hope everybody goes and checks out everything that Iona has to offer. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the conversations on this channel, please consider subscribing or supporting the channel more directly with the link in the description. And I hope you'll join me in the next episode.